Okay, well, let's look these over here. First one here, uh, one of the primary values of biblical theology is its emphasis on the progress of revelation. That's true. It's kind of a boring one. Yeah, normally I have them all false. So <laughs> I have to explain, ask you why. But uh, true. Uh, because systematic theology involves more human logic, its value is less than that of biblical theology, which deals primarily with the words of Scripture. False. It is false. Yeah. yeah. I, the, the point being that we can, you know, if we have. Um, valid syllogisms and, and careful logic, you can piece together the uh, parts of scripture and actually come up with even more than what the scriptures directly say. So, so we, we would say that that's not true. Don't you ever come to church on time? Let me guess, a train? Well, Van Horn and Allen both. <laughs> both unblocked again. So, I don't How know. many times has Pastor Brown told you just to take the free <laughs> to die? To well, you know, this is three weeks in a row. But, but last week I did. Last week Van Horn was blocked, and so I, I just took the freeway. But I left at seven thirty, so I thought, well, no matter what happens, I'll have plenty. Of time. I mean, six thirty, I'll have plenty of time. But did y'all already take the quiz? We're just going over. Oh, right good. Now, so. Good. So, three and four, I'm looking for examples of how church history can help and hurt the task of systematic theology, and I know what I put in my notes, I'm just curious, I I was just putting it out there to see if you came up with something that was different, other, uh, just sort of see if you're tracking with me and coming up with something that's uh, perhaps not what was in the notes. Anybody have any thoughts on either of those that you want to share? I put it generally. I didn't give a specific example, but the first one I put, we can build on the shoulders of church fathers right. who write, the ones that rightly divine the scriptures. We don't have to reinvent the wheels. <coughs> it's not a specific example. Right. But it's, yeah, it's, you're, you're right. I just take scripture at face value as it is written. Okay, so, and is that, uh, what are you, are you saying that's some, something that History is helping or hurting? Hurt gets helping. Okay. Helping, not hurting. Okay. So how can it hurt? So you, you've you've spelled out here how it can hurt. It shows us how. I took question two and said using logic. I'm sorry. Using logic. Using logic. It what what do you mean it. by that? That would hurt it. You wouldn't be necessarily on the right track. Is logic bad? No, but uh, if you get away from the scriptures, it might not be good. Right. Any example? They develop develop their dogmas and then it builds into traditions, and uh, Mm -hmm. they take that, that takes precedence over the Bible itself. And separate tradition over biblical fact. Mm -hmm. Right. But the error, right, that came up, um, that you can see through time and church history, right? So. Um, we don't have to make those same fall into those same traps. Right. Yeah. yeah, we can we can fall into the same traps, or we can not fall into the same traps mm-hmm. as we as we appeal to, to history. So it's got a, it's got a positive value, I think, overridingly positive value. But there are some pitfalls that we have to avoid along the way as well. Yeah, so I think I think we caught what we were doing there. Well, good. I think we're on page 21. I really don't want to spend much time on this first point except to 
you know, really just make a single point. The question is, what's the relationship of systematic theology to apologetics, or if I can put it there, you know, sharing the gospel and defending the faith. So defending the gospel. There are some, and I and I cite actually Warfield here, which is he's uh, it's stunning perhaps because of generally have you know, very high regard for Warfield. Uh, but he he makes an argument here uh, that uh, we've got to uh, we've got to defend we we have to we have to exonerate the Bible and make it reasonable uh, in order for us to take our stand within it, which is very which is a very troubling uh, approach uh, here. And uh, I think the the fact is. If, if we've got to wait for the Bible to appear reasonable before we accept it, then we're, we may wait a very long time, right? Um, you know, reading the uh, reading the stories of, of the virgin birth and the resurrection and the second coming and a creation out of nothing, we look at those and say, well, that's, that doesn't seem reasonable to me if, in fact, my the standard of my reason is the way we see things happen today, you know, the scientific method, what can be observed, what can be repeated. Well, we look at those things and say, you know, those things can't be observed today. They, they've never been repeated. So why should I, why should I believe that they seem unreasonable to me? Now, um, at the end of the day, they are reasonable, but only as we uh, understand that the God of Scripture is a God who is capable of and and inclined to do miracles, then uh, it, it it becomes quite reasonable to us. But we don't have to uh, take the take the data from outside the Bible and prove the Bible true uh, before we can start using it. Um, we can use it immediately. I, I I recognize there's more to apologetics than simply quoting the Bible. Uh, it's, there, there's more to the task than that. There's answering the fool according to his folly. You know there, that's part of the task. At the same time, I never will criticize a person, uh, you know, the, the, the simple believer who simply opens his Bible and starts using it, uh, because the fact is, uh, God has you know put into our hearts uh, the knowledge of Him. Uh, the, uh, the knowledge of right and wrong, Romans one and two, makes us quite clear, and so uh, they, there is a sense in which we can start <coughs> opening the scriptures, and they hear and recognize the voice of God. And uh, so, I wouldn't discount the, the possibility that one can simply open up the Bible and and, and start using it in 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 the gospel presentation. Now, there, I, like I say, there's it's not the only. It's not, it's not the only piece of apologetic method. There's things you can do to become better and, and more skillful in sharing the gospel. Uh, but that's the primary thing. You've got to use your Bible. Uh, you don't have to. You don't have to start by proving that the Bible's true before you can start using it. Thoughts on that? Uh, our, our reading. I forget the guy's name. Thompson, who wrote our reading, Susan. Which which one? Thomas. The ones that were assigned right Thomas. now. Thomas. Oh, 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 Thomas, Thomas? Yeah. <laughs> this past week's reading, he seems to, I'd say, take a big issue with this. With Warfield, right. Well, 
that kind of stand basically yeah. said you know, that we're man that is judge over God. Right. Yeah. Right. We ran into this. Uh, many of us were in that hermeneutics class <coughs> last semester, and you remember <coughs> we were talking there about, and they made us read some articles that weren't about hermeneutics, and it was by John Gerstner. So I was telling you about this. We were reading these articles by John Gerstner, and he was giving us this full approach about, okay. remember, we got to prove the Bible is true to, to, to man. we got to prove it to him. Remember that whole discussion we talked about? So Gerstner, John Gerstner, was adopting this same approach, and it's a problem. His teacher was R.C. Sproul. Sproul. R.C. Sproul. Gerstner was R.C. Sproul's yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Gerstner was R.C. Yeah. Yeah. teacher. And so Sproul had some of this, a little bit of this too, though. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. You don't probably read anything quite that bad in Sproul. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Right. But uh, so Sproul differed from a lot of his Presbyterian friends who are more the approach to it. Well, what's funny, I was just listening to Sproul's teaching today, and it was talking about uh, from heaven, you were. Yeah. That, <laughs> no, go ahead. I'm sorry. That, uh, <laughs> that God has to reveal the truth. Using the examples of, of Isaiah, saying that uh, you know, seeing they will not see, hear they will not hear. Yeah. And the only only way you can understand the Bible is if God reveals it to you. you know, yeah. Reveals the Scripture. So that argument it just really doesn't have a foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about some of that, those issues too, as far as interpreting and the illumination. That's that's coming up. So once we get into our doctrine of scripture, that'll, that'll be fodder for some very good discussion later on. I think in the class on fifty-seven, it yeah. says, uh, um, "Well, what he needs," because he talks about the proofs. You know, they try to prove that the Bible is the word of God, prove the Christ is the Son of God, prove his virgin birth, prove all those things. And this is in the end, um, what he needs is not information, but regeneration. Yes. Very good, excellent. Yeah, I, I've always I've, I've appreciated that that little book. It's yeah. it's it's a very helpful, and it's and it's not you know a thick read. It's actually quite accessible. I don't know if you've ever looked at that, but it's I, I still don't know what possessed his parents to <laughs> name him Thomas. But <laughs> who would do that? <laughs> Thomas Thomas. Thomas Thomas. Oh, his name's Thomas Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? Like the Benny Hill. Yeah, he could have been. No accounting for what parents did. Well, let's get into our last topic here before we uh, start into our doctrine of Scripture, and that's method in systematic theology, and in some ways we've been talking about this all along. So some of this, I think, can go fairly quickly. Uh, but uh, I just wanted, so, so you know, we've pieced together, okay, so, some of the some of the data that's, that's available to us. What I really want to do right now is say, okay, so how are we going to go about it? I mean, when we, when we sit down and want to talk about the doctrine of Scripture, and we're willing, if we keep going to the other doctrines, how, how are we going to start? How are we going to continue? How are we going to end? You know, what what what's it going to look like when we do this? I say here that the Bible is the only independent, self-validating source of theology we've 
sort of stood on our heads to say that, means it has to set, play a primary and prominent role. And so as we work through the, the various doctrines, there's going to be proof texts all along the way, and we're going to be appeal, appealing to you know, scriptural arguments uh, to, uh, to in order to defend the, the pieces of our systematic theology. But we, we have to be recognize that systematic theology is not the Bible. The Bible is not a systematic theology. It's not organized that way to be a systematic theology. And so we're not going to strictly be using the Bible and just, you know, you know, cobbling texts together to come to conclusions. We're actually going to be making theological statements that are summaries, that are conclusions that we can draw from a variety of texts and that's going to be a lot of and then and then much of our time will be spent talking about areas in which the bible perhaps is not quite so clear as it might be and there's a variety of opinions that lie out there among among the commentators and theologians along the way so that's so a lot of that's what's going to be happening here as, we, as we've noted above it's a philosophical structuring of truth according to a, an authoritative rubric the Bible, in such a way that it explicates and incorporates all truth. So it involves the selection of texts, the extraction of material from those texts, the prioritization of texts, the clear ones, and the integration of those texts together according to inescapable presuppositions and pre-understandings. We'll get into, I'll define some of those terms as we work along. There are certain things we're going to start our our course of study with uh, that are non-negotiables. God is... God has spoken, and those those things are not. We're not going to attempt to prove them. Uh, those are those are the the presuppositions of of our thinking here, and so having having those in place, then what do we do with the data that we have? I say there's there's multiple approaches to doing systematic theology. I actually have five described here under two headings, um, and I think there's there's some value uh, to be seen in both classifications. Of, of models here, and we'll see if we can't tease that out. I'm going to start here with ecclesiastical models. What I mean by that is church-heavy models of theology. That is, the church determines uh, what is right and what is wrong, and what is uh, and what is what we should take as our summary of the scriptures. Uh, you say, well, that can't be good. Well, it uh, depends on what the church is saying and what your church is uh, we can we can actually find some great value in this I start with the Romanist model which is perhaps our more tr- most troubling approach here it ostensibly recognizes the Bible as authoritative but vests interpreted authority so much in the church and its officers, the Pope specifically and the councils that have occurred over the course of, of centuries they recognize these so much that they cede the Bible's authority to its authorized interpreters. So rather than open up the Bible to find out what it says, we ask the experts, okay, the, the church experts, to tell us what does it say because it's too complex, too difficult, too high, too lofty, too. It sounds you know pious here when we when we say this. I can't I can't access it. So I'll ask the I'll ask the uh, the uh, the brains here uh, if if they can interpret it for me. 
And there's some value in that, of course. Uh, we, we have teachers for a reason. We have doctrinal statements of the church, creeds and confessions, and they're, and they're good. However, in the Romanist approach, the magisterial witness grew so increasingly diverse that Romanism has found no intrinsic, intrinsic method for indru- addressing its own inconsistencies and, more importantly, its errors. Okay, so the Roman system... Uh, you know, if you look at the whole collection of all the conciliar statements and the papal decrees and all that, you can actually find contradictory material. You know, so much so that the church actually split in two, right? I mean, the eastern and western branches, because they couldn't see eye to eye. There are, there are, there are bodies of, of, of absolute truth out there and they conflict with one another. Well, that's a problem. Uh, for truth is non-contradictory. <coughs> and then also, uh, errors crept in. Uh, some of them perhaps put in there deliberately. Uh, many of them put in perhaps innocently. Nonetheless, there are, there are errors that have crept in over the years. And there's no, there's no court of appeal in order to resolve them, as, as, as Martin Luther found out, for instance. Uh, he, 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 he puts the 95 theses on the, on the wall, wants to discuss these points, these, these talking points, and finds that when he goes in to actually have the conversation, the deck, deck is stacked against him. He doesn't actually have a, a meaningful and thoughtful conversation. Uh, he's basically told he's wrong. And that's, and, and that's sort of the story of, of the Reformation. However, this is not the only ecclesiastical approach. In fact, after the Reformation took place, we find that the ecclesiastical approach was still quite popular. It also recognizes the Bible as authoritative and rejects the authority of the conciliar witness of the whole historical church. It's irreparably corrupted. However, the genius of the reformational approach is in its hesitancy to let individuals on their own maverick thinkers all come up with their own their own ideas and so what they did is they they would you know that and and they would say that that actually happened among the anabaptists among the uh, the radical reformers that were particularly in europe um there was such a vast variety of theology there, and, and, and most of it hopelessly weird, because there was no rudder, there was no guidance. Uh, these were just individuals reading on their own um, and, and not having any sort of creeds and confessions and guidance along the way. Uh, they, they made all sorts of errors. Uh, it was almost a, a repeat of the first three centuries of the church in which we found all kinds of weird ideas. And after time, many of the, the poorer ideas were, were culled out and removed, uh, uh, but we find it happening all over again in, in Europe. Where, whereas the reformers, the particularly the Lutheran, the Reformed, and the Anglican branches, uh, immediately started making their own church traditions. Okay, so Perhaps the uh, most... Uh, most visible of these is the uh, is the Reformed Westminster Confession, 
Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and such. We also have in, in among Anglican the, the the Anglicans we've got the the uh, the, uh, the 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 Book of Common Prayer and the thirty nine uh, the articles of yeah the thirty nine articles. Um, and the same thing among the Lutherans we have we have we have we have of statements of faith that become then the the guiding principles of those branches of the Reformation. And there was some value in that. And there was, a, there was a, there were, they recognized value in the collective interpretation of the regenerate community. And in fact, oftentimes they got together and in in you know in assemblies, and they would uh, you know pour over the material for weeks on end in order to come up with these carefully crafted statements, which for the most part are pretty good. I mean, we we might quibble with bits and pieces of them along the way, but uh, all in all, there's been some remarkably helpful material. Okay, The Reform Reformational approach self-consciously recognized the unique authority of Scripture, but is susceptible to pray, placing inordinate value on what I've called here the cognoscenti. What are the cognoscenti? This is a term that, uh, that uh, Luther used. Um, Luther is often remembered for his statement that the Bible needs to be put into the into the language of the common plowman so that everyone can read the Bible on his own. At the same time, he was saying on the other side of his mouth, but we really need the cognoscenti of the church, the, the ones who know, the knowing ones, okay, the, the, the educated churchmen, in order to tell the common plowman what is actually right. Okay, and so there's a there's a there's an inordinate value placed on the the elites of the church, and no voice is given to those who who are simply reading their Bibles and have questions and uh, perhaps objections to what the cognoscenti, the knowing ones, are saying. And there is no provision for objection to these. So once you've got the once you've got these articles or these confessions crafted out. There was an expectation that you had to toe the line, and there really was no forum or very or very minimal forum for you saying, you know, I just don't think I, I just don't think that that point there is accurate. I don't think that's right. Well, there was really no forum for that, which we talked about last time. The Baptists, for instance, found themselves on the outs. Uh, they're they're in the Reformed Puritan tradition here. Uh, but they're objecting specifically to uh, uh, the uh, the infant baptism and the and the the organization of the church as a non regenerate community, um, and they they objected to that because they didn't see that in the New Testament. But there really was no there was really no forum that they could have in order to air their their grievances, their concerns, their objections, and so they end up sort of being. Uh, harried about here and there. Of course, uh, many of them uh, came over to the New World, where eventually they did uh, discover some uh, some uh, relief from their uh, from their from their concerns. Okay, but you see some some, for instance, Burkhoff making statements that perhaps make you cringe a little bit. The dogmatician deals primarily with the dogmas embodied in the confession of the Church. 
And so systematic theology, you pretty much start with the confession and explain it. That's what Raymond does, the theologian, dealing primarily with the dogmas embodied in the confession of his church, seeks to combine them into a systematic whole. In fact, if you look at his his uh, systematic theology, it is organized according to the Westminster Confession. And uh, so I think there is, there's while there's great value in, in confessions and creeds, it can be overdone. There is a third approach here, and perhaps I could skip it because I don't know that it's something that you that you're you're running into regularly here, but uh, perhaps you do. So let's let's do it. In response to the individualism of modernism, we haven't gotten to individualism yet. You know the individual models. Uh, uh, the new orthodox approach was deeply committed to the priority and authority of special. Revelation for Bart, who's representative of this of this understanding, the Bible is not special revelation, however, but a collection of witnesses to that revelation. So there's no authority in the Bible properly, but in God speaking to man. You say, well, isn't that the same thing? No, not for not for for Bart. Uh, rather, we have we have encounters with the divine, and the Bible is a collection of those encounters that various godly people have had over the years. They perhaps offer us something of an expectation, but they don't actually give us any sort of fixed body of truth. So authority is not best vested in the Bible, but in the church. Okay, The, collect, the collective of all of God's people. Theology, Bart says, can never be a question of the mere combination, repetition, and summarizing of biblical truth. It's more than that. It's what the people of God of any given generation happen to be saying about what the Bible says. In fact, he avoids, uh, the, inter- he, he avoids the internal contradictions of Rome and the rigidity of re- the Reformed thought by regarding true systematic theology as a dynamic expression of the community of faith. So what is true? Well, it's what the church is saying today. What is what is going to be our system of theology tomorrow? We don't know that yet. Because the church of tomorrow has not yet begun to speak. Okay? So this is this is the birth of what we might call postmodernism. Okay? So there is no foundation a fixed body of truth that is embodied in the closed canon of scripture. Rather, truth is in the collective of what the people of God of any generation are saying. Now, he regarded himself as reformed and conceded that the the reformed creeds and confessions were of value. But he also affirmed this, in the truest sense, there is no such thing as reformed doctrine. What he means by that, there is no such thing as a fixed body of truth that is inalterable and changeless. And so so it is a a form of ecclesiastical uh, theology, but it's one that is is mobile. It, It changes from generation to generation. You see that, right? In the church today, um, perhaps perhaps a good example might be with the, the question of, of homosexuality. 
And you've got churches that at one point spoke out quite sternly and strongly against homosexuality. But as the people of the church collectively began to be saying something else, then theology changes along with it. We have to be very uh, mindful of the fact that even though we don't encounter this kind of thinking in this church, it's the way a lot of people think. It's the way a lot of people think. The church has to do what we expect them to do. And uh, if the church isn't isn't changing along with its culture, uh, then there's something wrong with the church. Well, uh, it's, it's, it's a very much more problematic approach. Okay. So that's the ecclesiastical approaches, and uh, uh, obviously number two is the one that we have greatest affinity with, uh, but, uh, uh, but there's also individualist models. We'll start with one that is modernist. Okay? We, we think about theological liberalism, the empiricist approach. Everyone has his own experience of God individually. It operates from the presupposed authority of the scientific method. The governing presupposition colors the modernist view of scripture and its authority and, in fact, discredits it. The the scientific method really points to various inconsistencies and untruths in the Bible. In matters of faith, that which science cannot address, the Bible still retains something of a loose, unifying flavor, but only to the degree that it agrees with the sensibilities of the believer rendering it highly subjective and experimental. Authority ultimately rests in the individual and his experiences. And so you're familiar with uh, modernist, liberal, theological, liberal churches in which the Bible hasn't been opened in years. Why? Well, because, you know, truth and theology is vested in the individual. Uh, and, And... it's not even vested in the church per se. There, there are no creeds. There are no confessions. Uh, it's, and it's a, it becomes a very liquid approach to uh, systematic theology. I don't have a whole lot of, of, of good to say about that approach. But there is also an individualist approach that is, how can I say, I've, I've called it a biblicist approach. It self-consciously embraces the authority of the Bible for matters of faith and practice, arguing that the data for theology is is to be gathered strictly from the scriptures, irrespective of whether history corresponds to what I'm coming up with. Labels and categories, philosophical factors can be set aside. In its strictest form, Biblicism owns no creed but the Bible, and even rejects denominational labels. And so you have throughout the history of the church various groups, I mean, they're often called Brethren or brothers, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're disciples of Christ. Uh, yeah, I, maybe I should be careful here, but you know, a, a lot of Bible churches will fit into this category as well. They, they eschew the whole idea of denominations because uh, those are ecclesiastical approaches and we can't trust them. Those traditions irreparably become corrupted, and so we're going to extract ourselves from those denominational things and and, and say we're just a band of of brothers or a band of disciples, and and we're all on our journey together uh, to find the truth. 
but in, as individuals. Now, unlike the modernist, the biblicist model finds its authority in the Bible alone. However, unlike the ecclesiastical models, it vests interpretive authority in the individual. Each person reads the Bible for himself, and there is a sort of a decentralized approach. In fact, in the in the in the in the most extreme cases, we talked about the Quakers, for instance. There is actually no leadership at all. There always is leadership, but but they would claim no leadership. You'd come together in the churches. You'd have the women on the one side and the men on the other side. Uh, presumably, somebody gets up to say, "Okay, we're starting now." But then it's just a waiting until the individuals get up and have a word from God and, and they speak. Okay, so that's probably the purest expression of this. But but it's not the only expression of this. Okay. So there's some value in it. Uh, each individual gets to read the Bible for himself and and has certainly a vast forum for for airing out his his specific ideas and understandings and asking questions. And that's that's the strength of this understanding. The the, the weakness of this understanding is that there is no there is no centrality, there is no there's there's no unity, and oftentimes we end up with some pretty weird ideas. Uh, that people unchecked uh, develop on their own. So that's there's where uh, the, some of these points come out. The biblicist model supplies no check on individual interpretation, giving rise to the arrogance of inviolability. This is what the Bible says to me, and so therefore it's true, and you can't tell me otherwise. The biblicist model also supplies no impetus or mechanism for resolving antinomy. Okay, yeah, the Bible says that God is sovereign. The Bible says that man has freedom. Wow, what a mystery. Okay, but you, 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 you can't have uh, contradicting points of theology. And often in the Biblicist model, there's no attempt to resolve some of these tensions. Thirdly here, the Biblicist model naively assumes... That theology can be a sterile exercise free from all presuppositions and pre-understandings. Even the biblicist, for all his denial of bias, nonetheless, involves at the very minimum the selection and prioritization of the text according to some theological strategy. Okay? Yeah, when you, when you come into the Christian faith, you know, when you were first converted, you came in with some pre-understandings about what Christianity is all about. Uh, some of them, perhaps, were really weird. Some of them were accurate. You know, perhaps you were raised in a, in a Christian home, and you, you, know, you sort of had, a, had things pieced together pretty well. Some of you came in from, from some background that was, that was just weird. Okay? Um, and, and what the bi- Biblicist model tries to assume is that everybody can open up their Bible... And they're all on level ground together, and they they come and open the Bible and they have no biases, no presuppositions, and that they can just and they can start reading, and they're and they're going to come to right conclusions. Well, it doesn't always work that way, as we well know. Uh, and and you've, you've come across people who've said heard some pretty strange things about what the Bible says, and you start asking, really, is the, well, you know, they don't they're not really interested in. in discussing why they might be wrong. Okay. 
but because they think they're unbiased, and, and so they have there's a, there's an arrogance there that can as, be associated with this approach that says you know no one can tell me anything I I, I can learn this all on my own. And I say and I say lastly here by ignoring historical and systematic theological precedents, biblicism is particularly susceptible to old heresies and theological novelties. Uh, I think, for instance. Lewis Spirit Schaefer is a is a is a systematic theologian, um, regarded as the uh, perhaps one of the most significant systematizers of dispensational theology. He wrote a substantial eight volume systematic theology back in the nineteen forties. Um, it's it's remarkably well done, but here's a guy who has absolutely no theological training at all uh, simply opens his Bible and and, uh, and is and is reading and putting things together and 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 doesn't does a remarkable job for you know, he's, he's a smart guy but as you work your way through it sometimes he makes elementary mistakes that had he simply read some of the the the, the, the existing uh, systematic theologies that were out there, he he, he could have avoided. Okay, uh, and so so that's again that's that, that's the hesitation of the biblicist model. So what I want to suggest here is that we're going to build a model that 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 draws from the strengths of both of these approaches here, and uh, and uh, hopefully this this will make some sense to you. Do you have questions on these two sort of these two approaches that are out there? Okay. I know when you watch, I watch the Catholic Channel sometimes just for information. But, uh, but I mean, they, they look at well, they look at all the Protestantism and just probably just shake their head. That's and that's their argument for why they are the you know only the Church can do this because look at the mess that's out there in Protestantism. But, yeah, and it really is if you really solve it. I mean, people snake handlers and. Yeah, but what they what they what they fail to recognize is they've got the same thing inside yeah. their their system too. Yeah, it doesn't make theirs right, but right. that's the argument. There. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's there's a there's a certain there's a certain attractiveness that that has drawn people within Protestant Protestantism to the Catholic Church because there is this there's this uh, there's this safety of certainty. I mean, we all want to be absolutely sure we're right, and and Romanism offers that ostensibly. I mean, they don't, but uh, but that's what they offer. And there's there's a certain there's a certain relief that can that that some people just really like to have. Some some others more than others. I think we all like to a degree a level of certainty. And when we look at Protestantism and we find there's a fragmentation and not everyone is saying the same thing. It, it can be it can be uh, trouble, and and the church does offer that. You know, Roman Church offers that you know certainty, and there's a certain attractiveness to that. But almost a, a strength in numbers that this many people can't be wrong. But imagine you're, you're again you're praying that you've put your horse to the right wagon then, right? Right, but right. It's, but it's interesting how many conservative political types, very smart people, who get religion. 
they come to the Roman Catholic Church. Is you know you, you see them on you see them on the news channels and Fox and all that. And mm-hmm. these people who are religious, they're often Roman Catholic. They they get drawn to Roman Catholic or Jew or Jewish or Jewish. I was thinking not about as many, but, but when you were going through, I always think about William F. Buckley. Remember yeah. Buckley, very smart, brilliant guy, who would debate on any subject, the Constitution. You know, he wasn't a lawyer, but he would debate about what the Constitution. But I heard him say one time, he says, somebody asked him about being a Catholic, how do you? He says, I leave the exegetical function to the church. <laughs> See, there it is. I just suspend my thinking. Whatever the church says is right. I leave the exegetical interpretive function to the church. Yeah. That, which is what you have to do. Right, right. Which is what these conservative, really smart people do. They just, okay, I'm going to suspend thinking on that. <laughs> but that's not much different than us saying we're going to use the scripture solely, right? They're going to say they're relying on the church where we're relying on what, right. what we believe to be God's word. Right. But but then but it's a fragmented witness because it's uh, as yeah we we do we do right. recognize the Bible as our final authority, but then. So do a whole lot of other people, and they're not all saying the same thing. And that's, but we don't that's, we don't give up the interpretive function, right? We believe yeah. in the priesthood of the believer, right. so mm-hmm. we believe you have the right to interpret. We don't give that up like Buckley did, right? But it's just we're in such a Catholic area, and the people we bang into, yeah, like in my neighborhood, yeah. that's what we face. It's, <clears throat> our neighbors come to the women's things, and they and they came to our Easter thing, and. They feel guilty about like they're cheating on their church. You know, they've said she said that to my wife. I feel yeah. guilty. Yeah, yeah, and then and then it's like there's well, that's not what they taught me in my church. So this must be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's where the Holy Spirit has to break through. Right? Yes, that's right. That's right. So, so if we could summarize this, the ecclesiastical approach tends over time to replace biblical authority with ecclesiastical authority or creedal authority becomes cluttered by its own inconsistencies and frustrated by lack of any mechanism to correct them and also tends to take theology out of the hands of the ordinary believer and put it into the hands of the theological elites. There's the tensions. On the other hand, the individualist approach tends to discount centuries of painstakingly careful theological precedent to its own detriment inordinately subjectifies and individualized truth as truth for me, and to replace the unity of interpretation with the uneasiness of antinomy, you know, of disagreement here. So rather than adopting a method that is strictly one or the other, it seems best to adopt an approach that incorporates elements of both of these methods, both of these approaches. And I think we can find a defense of this in the scriptures themselves. For instance, the New Testament validates on one hand the Baptist distinctive of individual soul liberty, which Bill just mentioned here. Okay, we we each have, yeah, we we have the uh, liberty to interpret the Bible for ourselves. No one can tell us what what is right and what is wrong. Acts 17, for instance, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because they received the word, the message, with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Which is remarkable. He's the apostle. He's the apostle. And yet they're checking him out. 
and and they're commended for it. First John two twenty seven. As for you, the anointing, the old translation, the unction that you receive from Him remains in you, so that you do not need anyone to teach you, because His anointing teaches you about all things. Now. Obviously, we don't want to go so far as to say that we don't need teachers at all. And the scriptures are pretty clear that that is the case. We need teachers. Uh, We have the church structured with teachers and pastors and and, and so on and so forth. Uh, But the point here that is being made is that we we don't need them in order to make sense of the Bible. Okay, We can read the Bible on our own, and so that's what you're encouraged to do. Take your Bible home and read it. You'll you'll come up with questions and you'll probably make mistakes along the way. And so the teachers can be great assistants in that, in that, in in, in shepherding your thinking in the correct directions. But you're, you're never going to hear, you know, Pastor Ken say, you know, let's not read your Bible this week. Just let us, let us handle that for you. It just won't happen. Because we all have. We're all kind Anointing. of like lambs that need a shepherd. Right. But we all have, still have the ability to open up our Bible and read the Bible for ourselves. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, and, and says, From infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And, and who did he learn that from? Grandma. His grandma. mom and his grandma. I'm sure they're just simple women who 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 had learned to read, but they knew their scriptures. They read it and they shared it with Timothy, and he got a pretty good biblical education from mom and grandma. However, the New Testament also places weight on the voice of the whole church, as it synthesized, formally confessed, and applied the faith over time. For instance, in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, so-called, where they got together to decide whether they were going to be dispensationalists or not. That's my little short take on it. The question is is as to whether circumcision was necessary or not within the the new order of things, within this new administration of, 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 of God's of, of God's plan for this this period of time, and so the question was asked: Do we have to be circumcised, in, like they did in the Old Testament, in order to be rightly related to God in this in this particular window of time, this this dispensation? And they and they got together and they came up with some conclusions that were announced by James. First uh, Timothy four six: A good minister is to be established in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. The implication here is that there is a a collection of the central truths of Scripture, a a a, a synthesis, a summary of the truth that had been collected. I don't know if there was a systematic theology yet at this point, but there was already a a body of apostolic truth that was being confessed by all. Uh, 2 Timothy says, Brother, stand firm to the teachings, the paradosis, often translated the tradition, 
that we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So the apostles are saying, you know, we, we, we did give you not only the Bible, but also a, a corroborating and an expansive tradition that was, that was summarizing what the scriptures had to say. This paradosis here in view consists not only of scripture, but also of the of apostolic explanations and practice. The term is used negatively elsewhere in the scripture when referencing the traditions that are contrary to the word of God, the traditions of men, the traditions of the Pharisees. The same word is used negatively. and we, I, I think we're, we're sort of programmed to think of tradition as a bad word. Uh, but we actually find that it is used more positively in the scriptures than it is negatively. Okay, There is a good tradition that we should be uh, cobbling together. So he makes the positive, makes a positive use here that there is such a thing, that formal tradition that is both acceptable and necessary, even though at all points it is subject to verification by the scriptures themselves. And we actually find that there are many creedal statements that appear very early on in the apostolic period. Uh, Carl Truman has a book on the creedal, and he calls it the creedal imperative, and he says there's actually 12 of them. Uh, some of them perhaps are a little bit of a, of a question mark here, but undoubtedly there are several uh, short summaries, uh, clipped creeds of of the the central message of the scripture. We, we, what does what does Paul Paul speaks about delivering that which is of first importance? How that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture that he was buried and he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. And that's a, that's a, apparently was probably something that they were actually citing, that they were actually reciting as a church. So they, they, they're, they're putting together these little creedal statements very early on and there's several of them contained within the scriptures themselves and it gives us good reason for continuing that practice. It does not mean that post-apostolic traditions and councils carry the same weight of authority as the apostolic variety, but it does seem to establish a pattern for how the church is to approach the task of systematic theology. We're, we're, we're not just, you know, lone rangers and mavericks as we're doing systematic theology. We're actually trying to tap into the resources of the whole historical church. Okay? So, What's that going to look like? Well, I've got a diagram. Well, let me ask you a question here before we move to this diagram. Okay. So there's the diagram. And this is really where we want to spend the rest of our time tonight. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the material on 26, 27, and 28, I, I invite you to read it, but we're probably not going to take the time to actually uh, walk through it point by point. Uh, but I do want to spend some time on this little diagram here, because it sort of tells us the story of how we go about doing systematic theology. I, I, I make it into a circle here. Okay, it's it's not a line. There are some who actually have, a, you know, that okay. You you start with your, you open up your Bible, you establish the laws of reading, you do the exegesis, uh, you compare scripture with scripture, and you come up with a system, and that's where it ends. 
Okay, once you put your system together, that's the end. Your system doesn't come back and inform your reading of Scripture. But I, I, I reject that approach, and I'll see if we can't explain that. You can see on the on the on the on in the diagram that ideally, you start with presuppositions. Okay, these self-evidencing, authoritative starting points for argumentation, uh, which we are not actually trying to argue. Uh, there is no authorization for them. They are true. In the case of these notes, the Christian presupposition is that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has revealed himself inerrantly in the Protestant scriptures. So my ontological presupposition is that God is. My epistemological presupposition is that God has spoken, and this is how I know it. Okay? And so those are those are my two basic presupposition. Remember the, the the, the questions of any philosophical system. Uh, what is what is reality? What is what is metaphysics? Okay, what is? And and the answer for that in the Christian system is God is. He is the he is he he primarily is. And you know, we do we do want to expand that to say who is this God? Um, but and it is the Christian God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Trinitarian God. And how do I know this? Well, because he has spoken primarily through the Christian scriptures. These are these are things I don't try and prove. You know, I I, I give sort of an example. Uh, actually, I use this over in uh, in Tanzania. And, uh, for some reason, these, these these guys really gravitated to the illustration. Uh, maybe it was because they were in a, an agrarian culture. It may not work here. Uh, but so the, the the question that perhaps a, a little boy might ask his dad. Okay, so you know, he, here's out plowing field. Why are you, why are you why are you plowing the field? Well, to soften up the ground. Well, why why are you softening up the ground? Well, so that the the seeds we put in here will will be have have room to germinate and to grow. Okay, so wh- why do you want these seeds to grow? Well, because because we need food. Okay, well, why do we need uh, like a little kid, right? Why, why do we need food? Well, we need food in order to survive. Okay. Well, well, why do we need to survive? Okay. Well, now you're going to get into the questions of worldview. You're you're actually bumping up now on the primary questions. Why do you need to survive? Okay. And this is this is going there's going to be quite a bit of diversity. Well, you know, we live to to get rich. We we live to enjoy ourselves. We we live to please God. And what? Why? And perhaps you, they, there could be a variety of answers. But but let's let's pursue the the right one. Okay, we live to pre- please God. Okay, why do we live to please God? Because the Bible <coughs> says that's what we should do. Everything to do, and whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. So that's what the Bible says, and that's why we do it. Why does the Bible says that say that? Well, because that's what God said. Why did God say that? It's just because. And, and when you get when you get to this that when you finally get to that just because that's your presupposition. In our case, it's God is and God has spoken. Okay. Now you could do that for any number of worldviews, and 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 but eventually everyone gets to this. Well, just because it's the way it is, right? And so so that's what we start with presuppositions that God is as God and God has spoken. And so we jump then into the circle. Okay. Now, ideally you're supposed to do this in order here and start with hermeneutics, but the fact is we don't do that, right? 
Okay, we all come into the Christian faith with already with a whole bunch of ideas. Okay, some of them are dumb ideas. Some of them are really good ideas. Some of them are biblical. Some of them are not biblical. Okay, and so we come, and that's why all those pre-understandings are all around all, all the all the all the all the fringes. These are so that I'm distinguishing between a presupposition. God is and God has spoken. And the pre-understandings, which are simply the ideas that we bring into the conversation that have not been corroborated, they haven't been discredited, they're just ideas I have. Okay, And we all do that. Nobody, nobody comes into this process and simply says, okay, I'm going to think about the rules of reading the Bible first, and then I'm going to tease out the meaning. Yeah, that, that's all part of the process, but we... We rarely start in that very clean order. That's why the circle is helpful. Okay. Ideally, we go to hermeneutics, which is which is what 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 is, what is hermeneutics? Author's intended meaning. <laughs> <laughs> we had that hermeneutics class for the last. Oh, sorry, I didn't use the hand motion. And the only thing we learned, I remember, I told you about. Uh, <laughs> He stressed over there. That's why he's. Okay. <laughs> well, well, so what? What is it? Did, did you or did you not find out? Ever? <laughs> What's I, wa- I wasn't in it. Okay, yeah. you weren't there. Well, there's two of them here. Let's yeah. see how many was you, you two were in here. Yeah. Isn't it looking at the like at your level? You start looking at the original languages, and right? Start looking at meanings, and you know. Yeah. Okay. But be, it's, this is actually almost comes before that. We're actually establishing the, the rules, rules for reading. Yeah. I, I was trying to think of an analogy like the rule book for a baseball game versus yeah. the game. Yeah, yeah, right. that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so how how do we, how are we going to when we open this? How are we going to how how do we know how to read? Now, certain of these things become come come to us quite natively and naturally because we've been reading all our lives. But some, but I think it's helpful along the way to actually enumerate what the rules are, because there's all kinds of traditions out there that have really weird ways of reading the Bible. So we want to establish what the rules are for reading the Bible, and then we start reading. Which brings us to that second point there, which is exegesis. What's exegesis? Okay, uh, literally the drawing out of meaning from the Scripture. Okay, so now we've established our rules. We open up our Bibles. We start to read, and we and we and we come up with, you know, statements. Okay, you know, the, the, uh, and and we're going to come up with you know, the 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 Bible is inspired. And that the we we need the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit in order to successfully process the material in the Bible. You know. Uh, we believe in inerrancy, which means there's no mistakes in the Bible. Okay, so we're we're actually drawing out statements from the Scripture, and then also conclusions uh, derived from those statements of Scripture, and uh, and and we call that exegesis. Then, as we do that, we end up with yeah, if I if, 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 if what what Doctor McCune used to call a brush pile of data. Okay. Now we start comparing scriptures with scriptures and eliminating perhaps mistakes that we've been making. You know, we, we talked about the one in Romans. You're justified by faith alone and not by works. James, you're not justified by faith alone, but also by works. 
and you say, okay, I've got two texts that seem to be saying something different. So we take our brush pile of conclusions that we've come together, we compare them together and say, okay, how are we going to resolve some of the conflicts? How are we going, how are we going to explain the, the more difficult texts from the clearer texts? And so that, now we're starting, it's starting to take shape. Okay? And, and then we put it together into a system you know, with a nice outline of, of, of the details. But it doesn't stop there. Because what ends up happening then is our system comes back around to help us understand the scriptures again. Okay, and this is this is where this is where the biblicist model balks a little bit. Okay, we don't want our system to inform. Well, yes, we do. Okay, because if we build our system carefully, it's going to help us now to read some of the other scriptures. Right. So you know, I mean, it, and 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 it becomes a, a circle. And each time you go around the circle, you come up with you know more and more pre- precise and and detailed uh, uh, questions that you come 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 across, and you try and resolve them. And so you keep coming around. Sometimes you have to say, you know, I, I built my system wrong. I need to tweak the system. Sometimes I have to come around the other side and say, you know, I I read this verse totally wrong. Okay. And so we have to tweak our exegesis, okay? But it's a but it's a circle in which they're constantly checking one another, and and you're never done, okay? So, so I was going to say when I when I was ordained some years ago, 1980s, um, I had to put a, produce a doctrinal statement. <clears throat> Unfortunately, I don't agree with everything in that doctrinal statement. <laughs> I, I have a copy. <laughs> so you know, I've checked my uh, you know through exegesis understanding my system has changed over time and I refined it and so forth you know. yeah but don't give anybody a copy of that old one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I, I don't I, it's, it's funny that uh, Dr. McCune in a footnote in a systematic theology references a paper that I wrote my very first semester in in systematic theology one systematic one and it was on infant salvation mm-hmm. and I've completely rejected my view now. <laughs> and people ask me, hey, can I get a copy of that paper? I'm like, no, no, I don't give away that copy. I don't give away that paper anymore. <laughs> because over time, you yeah. become exposed to more verses. You, you become exposed to more and more conversations about those verses. And you, you know, sometimes change your, change your mind on that. And, uh, so yeah, so that that's that's the goal here. The Bible's always at the center. Um, the, the the Bible is always that that norming norm, that 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 norm that uh, never can be contravened. If the Bible says X, then X is right. Okay, uh, but it but it also helps us to say, okay, I sometimes make mistakes as I read the Bible. Okay, and so sometimes my exegesis needs to be corrected by the system, a system that may be you know the collection of 30 verses that come to a specific conclusion. Now I've got one flyer out there. What do I do with that flyer that doesn't seem to say what the other 30 are saying? Well, the weight of the 30 that have come together into my system now is going to inform how I read that that 31st verse, which seems a little off. Okay, And so so you continue doing that. So, I mean, for for some of you, this is the first time around the loop. Okay? Self-consciously. I mean, you're doing it all the time. 
uh, but this is the first time that we're self-consciously going to be going around the loop. Okay, so we'll we'll be pu- pulling out the verses, and you'll say, "Okay, I get it. Okay, that makes sense." And then you may come to the end and say, "But but 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 well, what about that other verse?" I, I love that question. I, I I don't ever don't ever hesitate to ask that question because I think that's really where the stuff of systematic theology is done. Okay. What are we going to do with this first that doesn't seem to be saying what you're saying? Okay, let's talk about that. That's 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 a great conversation because you're 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 working your way and and each time around the circle you do it you 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 take your nail your 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 file your rasp and just make it a little bit smoother and you work your way around. So that's that's the goal and uh, we're yeah, so we're we're doing that loop along here. So and the cyclical model means that you can you're, you're never done. I never say I've arrived. You're always working. You're always, you're always refining. Always trying to clarify and, and do better. Okay. Thoughts, questions on that? Okay. So next time we'll actually start into the doctrine of Scripture here. I, I give some limitations of theology and prerequisites of the study of theology, which I, I'd like to think are, are somewhat useful here. But I, I'm not going to go through them. Next time we'll actually start here in the first head of theology, that is the doctrine of Scripture. Okay? So, unless you have another question, we'll call it a night here.